So Manish, I want to ask you here. Do you think sometimes people find hobbies just to find like an escape from their existential thoughts, like you know, just so they don't keep thinking about it. They find a hobby to do so it mm-hmm. distracts them. Do you think? Yes. Yes, that that's a good question. Yes, often. that happens as well, right? So when I do say that's a good point actually. When you do bring about the hobbies thing, like I said, anything in the extreme backfires. So if someone is using a hobby to distract themselves from dealing. or working with certain existential concerns now that might not be the best way of going about it but if someone is say you know let me give an example here now someone has had a death in their family is dealing with death is grieving that is an existential concern now this individual is dealing with it is dealing with that is grieving now this person can turn to art right or can turn to movies as a form of coping and dealing with it which is acceptable which is all right because there is no right way of grieving or dealing with that but it is also at the same time important to be cognizant and mindful that hey i am using this mechanism to process my grief and that is okay but if you were the other scenario would be i will not talk about this death at all i will not deal with it at all and i will just do something i will just do art or i will just you know take up other hobbies then that might not be the best case scenario but in that not best case scenario also the individual is still grieving and dealing with it it's just a more complicated nuanced way of dealing with it so again there is no one right way or wrong way again anything on the extreme can backfire so if someone is very consciously or subconsciously putting things on the carpet doesn't want to work uh, with their identity at all or like you know their isolation at all and is only using distractions right then that can uh, be a difficult aspect and these distractions need not necessarily be art or hobbies these can be anything you know these can be alcohol these can be drugs these can be excessively hanging out with people all of which is okay and acceptable but a healthy balance is important so and also these are very nuanced way so there can be no one direct way that i can see that this person is distracting himself or herself or themselves by doing these 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 things they might actually be coping through it and we just don't know it they also don't know it then the role becomes to recognize that is it coping and if it is is it healthy coping or is it unhealthy coping so there needs to be dialogue there there cannot be a general judgment that is passed that this person say for example has had a death in his life and is the is gaming through cooperative right now how extreme and to what extent differs if this person is gaming and is also conversing with his friends about this death then that's a healthy balance but if he's only gaming right then and not talking about emotions at all that kind of can become unhealthy but if this person is gaming and is talking to his gaming circle in the in the lobby right about this death and about how he feels that's also all right because he's this is how he's coping right so we will have to take individual cases and then understand uh, this like that so there cannot be a general judgment that's being passed that too much excessive hobby is just distracting yourself because that can just be your way of coping here you know and that is okay it's important that we understand here uh, what is the nature and what is the relationship with the issue at hand okay so i have a question how would you mm-hmm. differentiate between uh, things in our life that we pursue to give us meaning and hobbies that we take up to avoid existential thought i will not be able to differentiate that because that would be a very uh, individual to individual uh, experience okay. so what might be a distraction for me might be 
a very meaningful experience for you. See, what happens is that we need not associate value judgment with distractions. Sometimes distractions work. Sometimes they are okay. You know, and when I say sometimes the, the time can be two months, three months, it is only natural that sometimes we take up to distractions. And at the same time, it's also important that we come back to reality. So it's a very difficult way to say that, hey, this is this distraction and this is just hobby. You know, it would have to be an individual to individual case. So say someone who is, say, uh, playing the guitar or writing music uh, to deal with a particular loss or deal with isolation, that's their way of dealing with it. And that's okay. You know, there is no judgment about, okay, that is a wrong way. It's just this individual in a Freudian way is sublimating. He's using his art form to deal with an emotion that he is experiencing. And that's all right. My entire point is that we just need to talk about it. I'm not saying that it has to be A or B. I'm saying is that it can be A, B, C, D. Can we all talk about it? Because that's what gets unnoticed or ignored. That we don't talk about the way we are dealing with these concerns. We don't talk about the nature of these concerns. Because once we start talking about it, there can be a lot of cross-pollination and learning from each other. There can be a universality of experiences, right? So that's the key here. It isn't about this is distraction, so it's bad. No, it's not that. There is no value judgment there. It's just can we talk about how you are processing or you're working around a particular, uh, you know, existential concern. So someone who is dealing with identity might take up art or painting as a way of dealing with this existential concern. And they find their identity as being a painter. And that's 100% all right, because that's who they are. That's what describes them. So, you know, but with catches, can we all then talk about, hey, I'm using my art to deal with the uh, concern of existential, uh, sorry, to deal with the concern of identity. Just that's that, just that acknowledgement, just that dialogue is where my intention lies and not value judgments or changing things. No. So while I was growing up, I read about different kinds of philosophies like absurdist mm -hmm. philosophy or hedonist philosophy. And I would often look to these to overcome my existential crisis. What kinds mm -hmm. of, what schools of philosophy would you recommend for teenagers out there with similar worries to deal with this in a healthy way? Uh, if you're asking an existentialist, I would uh, definitely recommend existentialism. But uh, this jokes apart, what's important is that what philosophy works for you? See, there isn't one particular philosophy that's the most ideal one that's you know that you should follow uh it's what stands you know it's what makes you feel right because that's that's the thing about philosophy if hedonism works for you please go ahead with it if absurdism works for you please go ahead with it if existentialism works for you please go ahead with it the catch here is because as an existentialist who believes in freedom and free will i cannot tell you which philosophy to follow my job or duty is to give you the vision or the lens of what existentialism looks like. And then trust you, the individual, the self, to make a choice and respect that choice. Because if I'm disrespecting your choice of, uh, say, choosing hedonism, then I wouldn't be a true existentialist because I'm you know, disrespecting your freedom. I can criticize your choice. I can have thoughts about your choices. But as an existentialist, it's important that I respect your choice and who you are. I can argue with you. I can provide you different, you know, ways of looking at things, but never disrespect the choice that you are making because it is you. And as an individual who believes in existentialism and existence, I need to trust you and your inherent ability to do good for yourself. 
and that good for yourself can represent hedonism for you can represent existentialism for you can represent absurdism for you what i wouldn't if anything recommend you know uh, as a psychologist would be nihilism because that's where existentialism and nihilism are culture and counterculture to each other they don't really go well uh, with each other so you know uh, anything that works for you because a philosophy also is an anchoring point you know it's also what gives you meaning so if i'm looking at the world through the lens of existentialism and existential psychology as an as a psychologist and as an individual as the self it's how i'm making meaning of life i'm making meaning of life of the randomness of the world through existentialism so as an existentialist i understand that the that world is meaningless it is very random and at the same time i have the free will to make my own meaning and that's exactly how i make meaning of my life but for a hedonism or for someone who believes in maximum pleasure and minimum pain that's how they make meaning in life and that is okay now there can be consequences of both believing in existentialism and believing in hedonism these consequences sometimes might not be very fruitful so it might be believing in existentialism can be a very isolating experience it requires a lot of hard work and a lot of consistent dedication to accept the randomness of the world in a capitalist society right for a hedonist then right you know later on in life certain existential concerns might uh, you know affect them and it might be difficult for them to deal with it so again there is no one way of going about it what stands right for you you need to look at a philosophy or a school of philosophy holistically and what works for you uh, if absurdism works for you which goes is you know quite hand in hand with existentialism as well you know looking at the work of kamu uh, uh you know when he talks about meaning making as well he talks about how the world is absurd it's random uh he talks about the strangeness in his book the stranger and other books as well and at the same time he also says that we have the freedom to make meaning of this absurdism you know to rebel at this absurdist world and that is how if you that is through absurdism you're making meaning that's about it so you know i wouldn't recommend any one particular thing but this would be my answer to this question i hope it makes sense and i have done justice yeah. you know to this particular question yeah. okay so i recently read this book called the outsider yeah. i am a it's yeah the stranger is called the outsider oh, yeah right. okay so there's this part in mm-hmm. the book where um, the protagonist he's on a beach and it's extremely hot and because of the Masaki. extreme heat mm-hmm. he shoots someone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um i don't know that was very intriguing to me so i want to hear your mm-hmm. opinion about that because if, <laughs> yeah sure 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 uh yeah so kamu is one of my favorite authors one of my favorite philosophers uh he talks in the stranger the first line of the book is what his philosophy is maman died yesterday or today i don't know that's how he begins the stranger which talks about the absurdist nature of life his own mother has passed away and he doesn't know which day it is that's a window into the stranger into the outsider see look at the terms look at the title of the book it's called the stranger which means he's a strange man in this world now what intrigued you you know and what intrigued me when i you know have read the book multiple times when he shoots uh the guy on the beach uh spoiler alert uh, i'd like if if anyone like you know would be i think you all could put a spoiler alert here uh, at the beginning of the podcast or something don't want anyone to like you know feel bad about uh, getting a spoiler but anyway coming back uh yes it is quite intriguing it is quite absurd it's random you know that's what it means as well 
See, that's the thing about the outsider and with Kamu, a lot of people try to understand it too much. Don't. The book begins and ends in the first line. Maman died yesterday or today, I don't know. It's absurd. Everything that he does, everything that he feels is coming from an experience of strangeness in the world, of an experience of feeling isolated in this world. You know, as he couldn't help but wait his own death and wish uh, that a lot of people come to see him die. Right? It's random. It's weird. It's absurd. He shot, he shot a man because the sun was too uh, high. It was scorching heat. You know, what I personally feel and perceive as a reader and a follower of Kamu, that there need not be too much meaning associated with it. It's absurd. It's random. And that's about it. What's important is that we focus on the emotions of the stranger, of the outsider, because this individual is feeling a stranger in the world. And that is how he feels so many emotions, so many experiences, so many events that he describes in the book. There's a strangeness that you yourself feel when you're reading the book, a sense of weirdness, a sense of bewilderment at life and at events and how things happen one after the other, after the other, after the other. And what are we doing? You know, who are we? So what I'd like to believe that we are all strangers in our own ways. Uh, we all feel like we are an outsider in this world, in our groups, within ourselves. Right. So then the goal then becomes perhaps as a psychologist is where I'm talking right now to feel connected to yourself. Right. So that's how I would shed some light on the stranger. By oh, okay. Uh, Manish, earlier you spoke about uh, the difference between existentialism mm -hmm. and nihilism. Right. Uh, you said that as an existentialist, you've accepted that life has no meaning. And uh, you said something along the lines of you can go yes. and make your own meaning. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so how does that differ from optimistic nihilism? Uh, how, how would you define optimistic nihilism? I, I, <clears throat> as far as I know, it's basically the same thing, right? You just say that life is meaningless. Uh, optimistic nihilism becomes it. existentialism because nihilism is that life has no meaning. That's about it. It's chaos. It's random. Right. Do whatever. Right. When you, optimistic nihilism is an oxymoron in my opinion. Uh, because nihilism is quite like there is no meaning and it's sad and there is only despair and you cannot do anything. It's all, it's all chaos. Existentialism on the other hand acknowledges all of that and gives you power, right? Uh, Nietzsche has been wrongly understood as a nihilist. He is not a nihilist. He was against nihilism. He was a hardcore existentialist. A lot of people uh, hear the word God is dead, right? I'm pretty sure all of you have also heard that term. God is that and we kill him. A lot of people tend to associate that with nihilism. It is not. Nietzsche, he was an atheist. He never believed in God. But he understood the importance of God. A said God. Like, you know, the what God represented. It was meaning making for people. So that's why he says God is dead and we killed him. Which basically means that we have killed the value systems, the ideologies and the anchoring points that have bound the people together, humanity together. And he was saying this at the peak of capitalism in Britain, in Europe, right? He was talking about all of these at the peak of capitalist Europe when industrialization was booming. So everything you have to understand in context in within history, right? So that's how I would, you know, understand nihilism and existentialism and how Nietzsche has been misunderstood and misrepresented as a nihilist. He wasn't one. He was an existentialist. He was against nihilism and he feared nihilism rather, you know, if I may, from my limited readings of him. So, yeah. yeah right. 
Lastly, Manish, I want to ask you: People see existentialism mm-hmm. as a problem faced by the privileged classes. Do you think it's a waste of time or uh, a pointless line? I think we've already cleared out how it is not pointless and not at all a waste of time. But that's a good question about the privileged classes. You know, I personally find myself struggling with that as well uh, about privilege and uh, the ability to think existentially. It is quite true uh, to a large extent how the social classes are intimately linked with existential thinking. Uh, what's also important to understand is again the context that I have been talking about. Existentialism primarily grew and become became famous uh, during and after the Industrial Revolution and after World War II. You know that was where the second and the third wave of existentialism and humanism increased with uh, Sartre and Camus. You know after the World War. Uh, so you have to understand the context. It really actually affected a lot of the working class and the middle class and the lower middle class. So then, what happened is that they had no meaning in life. They were shell shocked after World War II. Uh, a lot of PTSD, uh, war veterans, uh, a lot of people struggling and trying to rebuild a new Europe and a new Japan uh, after World War. So I'm talking about World War here, World War II. Here. Then existentialism and humanism came in. The inherent goodness of people, the inherent meaning that you can find. A very famous existential psychologist is Viktor Frankl. Who talked? Who was actually in a concentration camp? He was a Jew who was actually sent to a concentration camp, and he survived. And he became one of the founders of existential psychology. And he says that meaning can actually be found anywhere and everywhere. So it was the working class, and it was the lower middle class, and other people who also actually benefited from existentialism back in the day. Uh, it was also for them and from them because a lot of understanding of say herd mentality. That Nietzsche talks about is very directly directed at the working class because it is the working class who is part of the conveyor belt system, and it is their freedom that is being snatched away from them. So then, what happens is that uh, what the capitalist machinery would like you to believe that existential thinking—you need to be privileged to think existentially. You need to have certain things sorted out to think existentially. While I do agree with that partially, yes, certain basic needs, just you know, looking at Maslow's hierarchy, needs to be fulfilled before, say, someone can think about freedom or isolation. But don't we all think that someone who is poor and you know belongs to the lower strata of the society, be it class, caste, class, or gender, or sexual orientation, also experience existential isolation, also experience meaninglessness, also experience you know lack of freedom? what we tend to associate is a sense of pity uh, towards people who are underprivileged is it not possible that they actually have more meaning in life yes they are that is not to romanticize their condition at all that is not my intention here at all but is it not is it not our duty to just be open to the possibility that those who are underprivileged can also find certain meaning in life and their life is not just about their lack of privilege there can be other things to their life as well the lack of privilege is a very core aspect of their life i have no right of de- denying that but can we also look at their life more holistically more beyond that as well and in everyday interactions because that's exactly where the catch happens it's a cycle we like to think that meaning can only be achieved like a superman you have to have a rich car a rich house a good family a good career and that's when you can achieve meaning because that's what we tend to associate meaning in life with that's when we tend to associate you know lack of isolation or more freedom with richness uh, money means more freedom while that 
sadly holds true in a capitalist society it is also not the complete reality or the complete truth because someone might actually also feel free in other situations as well so it's a cycle it's an illusion that's being created so imagine a society where people are actually talking about these existential concerns it can be the rich class it can be the upper class the middle class and the lower classes of the society and it can be the underprivileged and it can be people belonging to you know lower castes and people belonging to the lgbtqi plus community who have been subjugated for decades but these existential concerns concern all of them the nature the intensity and the way they experience it differs from class to class but they all experience it now the privilege of talking and exploring is open for discussion but they all experiencing in their own ways and that is exactly why we need to talk about it that's exactly why there is so much less meaning uh, amongst so many of us and that's why we find meaning in extremist forms of political government or you know social movements because it's what anchors us a particular ideology anchors us and the thought that this ideology will you know be taken away from us instills fear within us and that is why we start hating on other ideologies other political ideologies i just gave this example to show you how meaning is present everywhere isolation is present everywhere the nature again i am repeating myself the nature the intensity and the way they experience it differs and we still do need to talk about it we need to hear how a lower caste individual is experiencing lack of freedom is experiencing a lack of meaning and is struggling with their identity identity not just politically or culturally but existentially as well when we talk about freedom it's not just about political freedom because what is political freedom we also how can we talk about political freedom without talking about existential freedom without talking about free will who are we trying to free and from what are we trying to free someone these are very basic fundamental questions right so that's a very wonderful question to ask and how existentialism it's not just for a niche crowd where you know we just have talk abstract stuff it's actually very practical and that's also one of my life goals to break the stereotype that existentialism is just abstract yes it kind of tends to fall on the abstraction leather on top which is basically it is more abstract in the continuum than it is concrete but it can also be very concrete it is can be also be very practical it can also be very relevant in everyday life from a 15 year old from a 12 year old to a 60 year old belonging to any caste class creed race gender ethnicity we all experience and deal with freedom meaning in life identity death and isolation and we all need to talk about it so you know i got a bit passionate there uh, forgive me for that but uh, that's how i feel about existentialism and its political relevance and social relevance yeah that's all right i mean that was great to hear honestly and i feel uh, this whole episode has really opened up my eyes on you know how to have a positive outlook to this like i feel kenzo ravish and i and even tanisha to some extent we had like a very negative outlook towards this like this topic as a whole i feel now i have a more positive outlook towards um, it kenzo yeah, ravish would you also tanisha thinks that um manish made some really interesting points which i had not considered before perspectives that i had not thought about so yeah it's great yeah ourselves, 
and i feel we really need to hear this you know that existential thinking does make sense it is good because i feel we we kind of thought that you know that, that we are like the odd ones out and you know or so i i, I just I, felt like i'm pretty I mean, sure so we didn't, didn't do things think so as well like which is like the only shot. ones <laughs> because it yeah that's, that's a, yeah, it yeah same sometimes it did lead to negative so, thoughts i think for all of us so i i didn't think that this would be a good thing but i guess we just need to learn how to manage it rather than ignore it yeah what uh, manish said about you know it being a skill that you have to develop i i really like yeah. that because i feel like over the years i've gone from you know being really um anxious and panicky when it came to these thoughts to dealing with them in a more healthy manner but that happened you know without me realizing that it was happening so to hear and put it into concrete words and you know i just realized that okay this is a thing <laughs> you know what i mean mm-hmm. see that's the thing right? that's why i was also saying don't attach try not yeah. to attach value judgments to your thoughts they are your thoughts and they are coming on up and about because you're a thinking being and it's okay to have these thoughts what happens is that the emotions that we feel after these thoughts are not so comfortable so then your focus is not to attach value judgment to your thoughts because by doing that you're attaching value judgments to yourself right but the focus should be to explore your emotions that are coming about because of these thoughts you know and that's how there's a healthy balance between thinking and feeling right i feel very helpful episode you know uh, i i i mean personally for the three four of us i think it was really helpful <laughs> so thank you money for being with uh, us sharing with uh, us for an hour uh, all of you today. Uh, spoke about and brought brought about this topic and i hope you know the listeners also benefit uh, from this if I hope some of it also, makes sense. Um, yeah. I think I, you should definitely give yeah, I'm, I'm some people sure. who have not uh, yeah, delved into sure this and me a few reading recommendations. <laughs> oh, uh, all right. Uh, I, I don't know about now. All right. If you would want to read certain things uh, when you're 20 years old, it's important. I don't want to be an ageist here. uh but certain things come about through experiences. So say within a year or two, you could read Kierkegaard, you could read Nietzsche, you could read Camus, more works of Camus. Uh, you could read Heidegger. Uh, uh, these are quite complicated uh, materials to read. Sometimes I don't understand what these people have said. So you could just refer uh, some secondhand materials yeah. as well. Uh, but like you know, read these things with an open mind. And what's important in the area of existentialism is that it's not all about thinking existentially, but it's also about feeling. existentially your life experiences are just as important as your thoughts because your thoughts are coming by virtue of your life experiences by virtue of being in a particular age by virtue of being in a particular life transition right so they are not mutually exclusive of each other they are quite interconnected like life experiences your thoughts and your emotions that you are feeling they are all very real and they are all very interconnected Okay uh, so to everyone who's listened to you yeah, thank, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode